Empower Radio presents The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Break through the illusion of separation, explore the infinite field of possibility, and make connections that inspire. Now, here's your host, Dr. Julie Crawl. Hello and welcome everyone. You're listening to The Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Each week we gather right here to make connections that break through the illusion of separation. In a time when millions of citizens have hit the streets to protest for or against something in an attempt to bring change to the most critical issues facing humanity, one man invites us to look at a different kind of activism. It's an activism born more from the mind and heart than marching feet, he says. It's expressed not by a megaphone or signs, but through teaching, writing, and facilitating dialogue, an activism that embraces our individual and collective shadows rather than opposing them or fighting against them. For months now, I looked at this book title and saw re-envisioning activism, not revisioning activism. It's fascinating how I had to correct myself in my mind several times. Perhaps it's both about re-envisioning and revisioning, revising activism. Our guest today encourages us to bring depth, dialogue, and diversity to individual and social change. I invite you to take a few deep breaths, open your mind and heart, and settle into your essential wholeness, your aliveness. As I introduce our guest, David Bedrick is a speaker, attorney, and author of Talking Back to Dr. Phil, Alternatives to Mainstream Psychology, and Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. His new book is You Can't Judge a Body by Its Cover. That's the book that caught my attention. You Can't Judge a Body by Its Cover. 17 Women's Stories of Hunger, Body Shame, and Redemption. David is the founder of the Santa Fe Institute for Shame-Based Studies, where he teaches and works with individuals around the world. Welcome, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Julie. Well, I'm happy to bring you here for a lot of different reasons, and you're going to find out really soon as we open up this dialogue, David. But first, I want to um, give you my first traditional question that I, I ask every guest mm. that I've had on the Dr. Julie show over the years, because I like to ground our conversation in a holistic perspective and a whole worldview. And so I'm going to ask you to share with our listeners, what does all things connected mean to you? Well, that's a great question. I have instant flood of answers, but I'm, <laughs> taking, I'm taking your counsel to breathe um, <laughs> on, a, on a big day for myself, but I'm settling in. I think the inner world of people and the outer world of our social situation mirror each other. And my view is that they come from the same source. It's not that one creates the other. It's not that I create my outer reality or my outer reality creates me, but they mirror. It's like a hologram. You know, those pictures, if you take a holographic image and, you, and it was a piece of glass and you threw it on the ground, right? And then you've got one piece of it. In that one piece shows everything. So I think we're connected 
in that way. Mm. David, thank you for that answer. That is the one theme that literally is woven throughout every page of this book, the one that I'm holding up. We're going to talk about both just um, briefly, but I really want to focus on the revisioning activism. And that theme goes through every page and every essay in this book. And I really, really, really appreciate it. And I know we're going to expand on it because I do have many questions about that. But David, first, let's, let's talk about your story. You write that perhaps these actions share a common heart one that seeks to create a more just planet where voices with smaller megaphones and audiences mm. can be amplified and heard. You're going to find that I, the listeners are going to find, I love several phrases of your poetic mm. voice that comes through this, but mm. tell us how you became this unusual activist mm. for those smaller microphone, megaphones, mm. microphones, mm. audiences, all of that, yeah. encouraging us to bring this depth, dialogue, and diversity into social change. Many times when I think about that, I find myself in my early story, my childhood story, as many people do. I don't know if that created everything, but it's a story that resonates with and has some of the causation. And in my early story, one important element is that I had a father who was violent. He used fists and belts and inappropriate mechanisms, right, of communicating, let me call it that way, um, abuse. And, um, we shouldn't be afraid of using that word. Um, he was also a Jewish man. For me, that's very important because he's not only an individual, he's a male individual in a patriarchal culture and a Jewish man coming off out of a Jewish history. Now, sometimes when I say that, people say, are you just saying that he's a victim too and it doesn't matter? And I say, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that these things are linked. You can't tell only one part of the picture without the other. So I have this father. He comes out of a history, a personal history, a Jewish history, and he has a lot of oomph in him. He doesn't know what to do with. And rather than learn or educate himself or protect his children and family, he's violent. And then, he ha- and then I have a mother. It wouldn't have to be a mother that plays this role, but it does sometimes in society and did in my family. And my mother's role was this. She would either, when I would go to her or she would see the violence, she would say either, David, that's not really happening. It's not the way you think it is. I call that now a kind of a denial, if we can be psychological. Or she would say, you're exaggerating it. You're too sensitive. You're making more of it than it really warrants. That's kind of a dismissal, I sometimes call that. Or she would do what people call today gaslighting. You shouldn't have done that. If you didn't drop the glass and break it, your father wouldn't have whatever he did, exploded the way he did. And these three elements, denying, dismissal, and gaslighting became a lens for me. More than abuse itself, Julie, more than this person's violating that person, I started to see the way people frame things and the way people internalize that framework. And that became a vision for me. How are people framing things? If you look at racism, somebody does something egregious, injurious to black by the bodies or psyches. I see that's awful. But then how is the culture framing that? Should we be over racism? Is it not really happening? Is it no big deal? And that framing became very important to me. I ended up thinking about shame in terms of that framing. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you write about that in the book. And 
and talk about shame as well. But the other piece that that you're really talking about is society's the status quo that that literally with all this denying and dismissing and gaslighting, a lot of times we go, oh well, maybe this is this is me and maybe not. One of the most important conversations in the book is how mainstream psychology contributes to this, not just the individual problems, but our social problems by normalizing and accommodating these very things and and the status quo that we're talking about and also denying the shadow. Can you speak more about the role of psychology in where we're at today on the planet? Yes. I mean, I think you're mentioning the two pieces. One is a social justice perspective. For instance, in, in that particular book, the, the Revisioning Activism, I, one of the things I did for that book was I started studying topics. So, for instance, I studied the topic of stress. Stress is one of the most written about topics. If you Google it, you get, I don't remember how many, many thousands of articles, right? Now, if you read those articles, for instance, you're not going to read about the infant mortality rate in indigenous populations, for instance, now, and many other things, but just take that one small microscopic piece and look at it and think of, empathize with an indigenous woman reading that. And she's saying, somebody's telling her to relax and giving her relaxation techniques and not mirroring back the society that she lives in. So psychology, so that's going to be difficult for her if she's, if she's vulnerable in a certain way, she may take in the message, how come I can't reduce my stress this way, right? If she's less vulnerable, more protected, insulated by her own personal power, she's going to say this stuff of psychology, which is most of the articles are going to be like that, maybe every single one, doesn't mirror my reality. I better not look at it. If she takes it in, shame enters. Now, popular psychology and more and mainstream psychology does that to many people. It's going to do that to you as a woman in many cases. Like if you looked up, if you looked up weight loss for yourself, you're going to get a bunch of advice and counsel that almost never, some will, but almost never going to talk about sexism, what it's like to be objectified as a woman or a sexist culture to be looking at you, what it's like to have internalized oppression that you now look at your body through that lens and how you resist that. It's almost never mentioned. How come? And what do you do then? project onto you as a woman, Julie, but it wouldn't be you per se, right? Just what do women do? I can, I know from my research, do with that. They almost never think, well, I'm looking at myself through a certain, a, a certain internalized lens that's hurtful. A woman thinks, why can't I do this? How come I'm not disciplined? What's wrong with me? Those are shame. So then, then the individual without the social consciousness thinks they're an individual to be pathologized. What's wrong with me that I can't et cetera, et cetera, get over those things. So that's the social justice dimension where psychology often fails, doesn't address it enough. I, don't know, I could say more about the shadow, but let me stop for a moment there. And yeah, see, let's yeah. let's do, let's okay. pause for a second because you're, you're bringing back this really important thing about the mirroring and the mirroring back and that, um, you know, that the problems are both out there and in here, like you, you said in the, in the opening here. Mm-hmm. Yet we continue to project out there and we look at the other as the problem. And where do we begin? How do we begin to connect the out there to the in here and, and kind of repair that mirroring, really get it, understand it and embody it. Cause you know, 
it's it's one thing to move into self-reflection, but it's another thing to really change our, our collective hearts and minds and look at ourselves as a society. So how do we make a difference in that role, David? I'm curious of that, that mirroring back. How do we shift yeah. our oh. individual perspectives so that we really truly understand how not only our own internal responses, reactions, thoughts, feelings, beliefs, whatever, but also looking at our environment and our culture and what that is mirroring back to us and having that be part of the problem, not projecting, but you know what I'm saying here because you've written tons about it. Yeah. We need so much education. I mean, we need so much education in this area. I, I often think of different exercises and I can say some of those. But our ability to see what's going on and to connect with the outer world and our inner world is so rare that we don't we need we need more people. I'm so excited, I'm tripping over my own words. We need more people with that therapist, educators, blog posts, educating people to say, let me help you make a connection between what's happening inside and what your outer world may be like. I'm thinking of so many examples. Let me give one. I once worked with a woman and she came to me and she said, I need help with my anger. I've been angry, she said, more than 13 years with my partner. Partner happened to have been a man. And um, I worked on it in therapy for 10 years and my anger won't go away. Now, and now this was a woman who was incredible activist in the world, worked with women all over the world and on women's power. And yet here she's saying, help me get rid of my anger. And I'm thinking, that's a woman saying, help me get rid of my anger. So I think maybe she needs help to let it go, get rid of it, however that is. But I think maybe not. Maybe I should think she has some conditioning that while she's in the outer world doing social justice work, she's not thinking, what about that for me? How, am I against my anger? Has that been programmed into me? Can I not connect with that in some way? So I asked her, before we get rid of your anger, can you tell me what your anger is like? And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, can you show me with your hands, make a fist, or what does your anger look like? She says, I, I don't know. I said, can you draw it? I gave her a big whiteboard and color markers. She says, I, I don't know. I said, how about if we stand up and make some motions, like an angry motions? And she said, I've never done that before. I thought, it's, it blew my mind because it's so incredibly common. She's trying to get rid of something. She doesn't know what she's trying to get rid of exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. It's like, doctor, help me get rid of this. What is it? I don't know. Right? We don't have to do a diagnosis. And then the more we looked at that, the more I can see she has some programming. And as soon as I could say to her, can you show me some of the energy of what you show me as anger? Then she shows me something of herself that wants to debate, that wants to disagree with things in her relationship. She says, what should I do to get rid of it? I said, you have to have some dialogues with your partner that bring out some of that passion and some of that disagreement. You don't have to bring it out in your fists. I, I'm not suggesting that, but some of that energy. How come she didn't think of that? Why didn't she make that connection? And I'm not blaming her. It's not thought of often enough. People aren't making that connection between the inner and outer. Yeah, and you know, so this expands on the, I think this other important piece when we're looking at revisioning 
activism is that you talk about that, you know, simple policy change doesn't work. We have to talk about how we think and feel and that change comes from really looking at that and that emotional investment in us is is how we're thinking Mm -hmm. and feeling is critical to that change. Policy change for activism doesn't work. Some people just, you know, it's, then it's just a law. (laughs) So like explain that the correlation between, between that, that in a deepening way, David, because I think that is a really important piece here. Yeah. It's a profound question you're asking. It, there's so many different ways of thinking about it. It just makes my mind goes broad. I look at the blue sky when you say that. I think, wow, there's such a, how do we make those changes? How do we enter into that kind of worldview? Sorry, I'm contemplating as, you, as you're asking the question. Um, say one more thing, if you could. Is that okay to say? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think this is an, you know, it's kind of like, um, I'll I'll tie it back to another thing that you write about, but, you know, simple policy change doesn't work. And you talk about really that inner and outer and, and it, a lot of it is attached to the thinking and feeling, but there's so many subtle forms uh, of bias in our world, our language, our microaggressions, you know, how we raise awareness to these unconscious behaviors and these conditioned responses taps into literally that embodied sense of who we be and how we're thinking and feeling. And if we don't look at that, then we just go continue going on making those biases and, you know, and, and participating in society even when policy change has, has perhaps even, you know, so we want climate change. So we make policy to, you know, you can't use plastics anymore and then we go and trash it some other way. So yeah. until we really embody this understanding of that mirroring and that inner and outer world, we're, mm-hmm. we're kind of on a sinking ship. So does yeah. that help you kind of pull yes. the blue sky into more of yeah. an embodied response? <laughs> yeah, right. I guess it I left my own. <laughs> yeah. If I could do one thing that would move people into that more embodied direction, less policy-oriented, although I'm into policy, but you're saying clearly, and I agree, there are limits. We've seen that with the civil rights movement and, and yeah. policies and the problems that remain some, t- some would say almost none changed very little at all. I think relationship, relating and learning to relate to another person that's different than you is a really central method of having that mirroring happening. Now, when I say different than you, everybody's different from you. So I could say, if I could, I could talk to you, Julian, we could just have a regular chat, whatever that means. Or I could say, can we talk as man and woman for the moment? What it's like for you to be a woman walking in the world? What it's like for me to be a man walking in the world? As soon as we bring up that difference, things are going to happen if we have the courage to enter. Some people say lack of fragility. Mm-hmm. But they don't only like that idea because fragility is not only a bad thing unless it censors conversation. Or I can take a person of a different age, and I certainly can do that with a different race or ethnicity or religious background or political view. Entering conversations like that, if they can have enough respect to hold them, especially if we can say, let's do that in a way, Julie, where you and I care enough about each other, where injuring each other is going to matter to us. 
right? And we're going to actually try to hear the other person. The conversations like that are deep, not only because they might change us, but because we build relationship across that boundary. For instance, I was once with a group and we worked with, uh, we brought together people from a gay lesbian community. This was probably 20 years ago and a religious right community that was against policy changes. They didn't want books that had two mothers in the, uh, for their children. And the gay lesbian group said, we think those books should be there to educate people. So there's a big difference. So we pull those people together. There's probably 150 people in a room, some people on one side, some people on the other. And they start to talk a little bit. At the beginning, the people who were more religious, right, they had a Bible and they would read from the Bible. And we'd say to them, I love your Bible. Could you please just express it in your own words, just so that the relating happens? And I'd say, this is what's bad. This is what's bad. And then someone from the gay community would say, this is what's bad. And they start talking. And they had one common ground. We both have children. We don't want them to get hurt in our, in, when they go to school. Now, after that conversation, what changed? Did anybody change their policy view? I would say not a single person. The same people said, those books don't belong in the school. And the same people said, those books are needed in the school. But they walked out talking to each other about their children and how they care about them when they leave the home. That bond of connection can do magic that changing people's minds doesn't necessarily do, maybe can never do, and brings a kind of healing power to the world that's beyond the, pol the policy issue. As you're saying, it, it mirrors one particular thing especially, it mirrors our humanity. Oh, you're a human being subject to the suffering, the difficulties that you, and the joys that you go through. So am I. That's a common bond that's really special to build. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, we just have a few minutes before break, and I want to dig into that common humanity and that whole topic of diversity. And since you wrote this book, the whole um, yeah. topic has really escalated. And so after the break, I want to talk about Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. I want to talk about um, mm -hmm. the Black heritage on the planet. You write a lot about that and, and learning from our Black elders. There's so much there. But I'm wondering just in like two minutes or so before we go on break, if mm -hmm. you can talk just briefly about the importance of diversity and really building cooperative communities of diversity. Just like you said, when we can come into this common bond of connection, we see ourselves as human. So to set that up for our next half, what can you tell us about the importance of diversity here? Wow. I mean, in my view, Julie, diversity is part of the fabric of the universe, so that's like a spiritual view, you could say, or a worldview, a theological view. Um, and then people have more or less one of two avenues in addressing diversity, that both are human, both are part of the humanity. One is, how do I lessen that so I can feel better, more comfortable, at worst superior? Some people need this sense of their power. How do I get rid of that? How do I get rid of my symptoms in my body? How do I get rid of symptoms in the culture, which look like racial symptoms? How do I get rid of the difficulties in my relationships, which looks like 
making more commonality so we're more harmonious on the same page. That's one strategy that's important because it helps people start to get along, but it always operates by marginalizing the diversity. And then the diversity, because of the laws of nature, I would say when you marginalize something, it doesn't look so good. It causes depressions in people in groups, it causes explosions, things like that. So the other avenue is to say, how can I connect with that diversity? And then to bring back to the theme you're focusing on, how can I see that outside? And how can I see that inside? What about my own diversity? What am I trying to get rid of in myself? Is it my anger? Is it my vulnerability? Is it how expressive I am? And then how do I look at you in the world as, as, that, uh, as a projection screen for that? So the other option from the, how do I marginalize, get rid of, split off, cut off, make more harmony by making more sameness, how do I address the diversity of the world? That means I have to learn to relate, have a relationship with you and then myself. Hopefully then that we build a commonality, you would say a cooperative world. Yeah, and David, I just want to clarify, because you're not talking about abdicating our responsibility for the external and, and the activism on the outside, but it really is important to have this dynamic um, movement of looking within and then acting without. Like, it's like this, yeah. it's all part of the same process, right? Yes, or looking without and then looking within. Some people yeah. say, I want to go stand on the White House steps and say yes or no for the next president. And I say, awesome, go for it. That's that person's path for a while. And I say, can you also look a little bit at how that is operating inside? What's your for and against inside? How that mm -hmm. same dynamic is operated, you could say, in your inner democracy. How are you totalitarian with yourself? For instance, I work super hard on myself sometimes, and then I'm like, how come other parts of me that want to rest and take it easy don't get much space, my internal health care? So it could be a person who's operating the outer, or it could be a person who's operating the inner. If you're inside, maybe you want to know something about the social issues and dynamics behind how you look at yourself. And if you're operating the out world, maybe you want to look at who you are and how that's playing out, what you're fighting inside and outside. So that the wholeness and the connectivity that you're talking about becomes part of the fabric of the way you're seeing and intervening. Mm. Oh, perfect. I love that. You dropped in the inner democracy, inner health care. I also like one of your quotes talking about the inner defense budget. This is all going to get so much yummier. I'm going to encourage you all to stick around. I'm Julie Kroll. You're listening to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected. We're here with David Bedrick talking about mm -hmm. revisioning activism. We'll be right back. The Empower Meditation Channel. Non-stop meditation music 24 hours a day in the new Empower Radio app. Music to empower your meditation, help you relax, sleep, or provide a calm background while you work. The Empower Meditation Channel is interruption-free. Listen now with the Empower Radio app, free in the App Store, or listen online at empower.fm. Soothe your soul, calm your mind. The Empower Meditation Channel. I don't believe it. My savings are gone. They're gone. You're kidding. Nope, they're gone. They're gone, gone. Okay, all right. Think about it. 
Where did you have them last? I remember I was home, then I took them, and then I spent them on that vacation to Aruba. Then I bought this miniature suit of armor I saw in the in-flight magazine. And that's the last you saw of your savings? Yes. This is so weird. I know, right? Weird? Uh, not really. Not saving now means no money later. You'd be surprised how quickly a little money from every paycheck can really add up. Put away a few bucks, feel like a million bucks. For free ideas and easy ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. The armor is cool, though. Oops. I think I broke its gauntlet. You broke my favorite part. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. This is Namdi Asamoah. I play football for the Philadelphia Eagles, but what I do off the field with United Way might be more important. I'm a volunteer tutor and mentor. Why? Because over a million kids a year drop out of school, and that's not okay. It takes 12 years to create a graduate, but it takes about the same time to create a dropout. And the difference between a child becoming one or the other could be me, or it could be you. Studies show that if we get to these kids earlier, their chances are better. And kids who read well by third grade are more likely to graduate. So join me in United Way. Suit up and take the pledge. Become a volunteer reader, tutor, or mentor. Because when a child succeeds, we all succeed. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Take the pledge at unitedway.org. Brought to you by United Way, the Ad Council, and the National Football League. This is the sound of E. coli splashing around in raw hamburger juice on your cutting board. And it looks like mom just put the tomatoes and onions on there, too. Don't let E. coli mosh with your food. An estimated 3,000 Americans die from a foodborne illness each year. So always separate raw meat from vegetables on two cutting boards. Keep your family safe at foodsafety.gov. Brought to you by the USDA, HHS, and the Ad Council. Now, back to the Dr. Julie Show. All things connected on Empower Radio. Welcome back. Hey, if you're inspired by our conversation today... I invite you to share it with others and perhaps listen to it again. You can do that by visiting my website at thedrjulieshow.com where you'll find all the archive links as well as a listing of upcoming guests. Again, that's thedrjulieshow.com. Also stay connected all week on my Facebook page, All Things Connected with Dr. Julie, where we continue the conversation. I invite you to be a more conscious, courageous, and compassionate co-creator of this beautiful, healthy world we depend on. Come work with me. There's lots of ways you can do that. You can check out those opportunities at jubileecrawl.com and goodofthewhole.org. Again, that one is goodofthewhole.org. I'm here today with David Bedrick, author of Revisioning Activism, and You Can't Judge a Body by Its Cover, and another one. And I just want to remind you, if you want to check out David's work, go to davidbedrick.com. That's david, B-E-D-R-I-C-K.com. So, David, um, welcome back to the second half. And I just mm-hmm. want to open us to this larger picture of what's happening on the planet. And there's so much more um, about activism that we can dig into. But I have to say, I love your writing. Each individual essay is like enough. You can read a section, put it down, mull it over all day. You can also have, you know, 
read the whole book as as really it weaves together. But you have many poetic moments tucked inside, like citing research and and like the headspace, and then all of a sudden you hit the heart and the soul, and there's this yummy poetic stuff. So here's one. As you talk about honoring our Black elders as part of reclaiming mm. the American soul, I love how you wrote this. So I want to do this to introduce our conversation about Black Lives Matter and what's happening on the planet right now. You wrote, these teachers, you were referring to um, a lot of the Eastern teachers and, and other spiritual teachers that we we look to, and you're inviting us to really look at the black elders. And you wrote, these teachers don't turn water into wine. They turn tears into the blues. They don't walk on water. They create music that we float on. They don't carry a staff and part the Red Sea, but they do honor the Hebrew cry, let my people go. Talk about the black elders, uh, their wisdom. I like that brought tears to my eyes reading that part and mm -hmm. thinking about all the wisdom. And as soon as I got to the place, let my people go. It was like, oh, yes, their wisdom honors and redeems so much for the, the black heritage, the black culture, but also our American heritage and culture mm -hmm. that that needs reparations and repair and forgiveness and, and what have you. So talk about these black elders and the importance of really lifting them up. You know, when I was saying earlier about my own story of denial, dismissal, and the gaslighting, these things happen often subtly. So yeah. as so one of the ways that it happens that really moves me in, in this particular essay is that we're not often looking at African-Americans, elders, that not every person is an elder, elder meaning a person who can educate deeply, I wouldn't have to do with age, we're not really seeing them, and that there's an inclination for people to look to the East, for the Eastern teacher, the Indian, the Burmese, the, the Buddhist, etc. teachings, and then there are people who were alchemically, what I want to say, cooked here, their blood soaks the earth and know something about this particular place called the United States, other places also. And they have so much to offer that, that they're looked at as writers, as authors, right? Uh, maybe as preachers, but people aren't going saying, teach me. And that, because I'm a feeling person, it hurts my feelings to see that happening. I'm not against Eastern teachers, but I'm, a, but I'm hurt when I see how come people aren't saying, Tony Morrison just passed, so I, but how come people weren't saying, Tony Morrison, please educate me about spiritually how to look at the world? People were getting that from reading Beloved, etc. Mm -hmm. But people weren't looking at her that way. Or Maya Angelou, the last time I heard her speak, she died some years ago. She, she said, I'm asked, today I asked the introducer to introduce me as Dr. Maya Angelou. And she was in her late 70s at that point. And she said, I had never done that before. I was okay with people calling me um, a, uh, a writer and a poet, but not doctor. Why? Why shouldn't she have that kind of eldership authority in the culture? Well, then there's like a, there's a implicit and complicit race bias in the culture that says, I don't look at that person that way. I look at them like the movie teacher, maybe. It looks a little bit bizarre, but not as the actual elders. So I think 
looking at it that way, the musicians, especially people, mm-hmm. John, the John Coltrane's, the Nina Simone's, these people did such amazing things. If you study and hang out with, or just don't study and just feel, how did somebody like John Coltrane take a simple song like these are a few of my favorite things and jump off into deep spiritual place? How did he share his voice with another voice and let the drummer shine and then the saxophone shine? How did he do that democracy like that mm. and work together? When we look for models of that, how do we get along with each other and you get jazz? And how do you deal with when some of my clients say, I'm really depressed? And they say, help me get out of my depression. And I think, yes, have you listened to the blues much? Have you listened to Walter Wolfman Washington with his syrupy voice? See where that takes you. It may take you to a warm, luscious place. I'm not saying depression is good. Some people need help and, and, and can hurt themselves. But environments have been made through the great human struggles by African-Americans in, the, in our world and others that say, here's how to walk. Here's how to go from nothing into a world that you don't know. Here's how to go from a ship that could kill you into making a new life. Here's how to make beauty out of hell. Um, anyway, you're hearing my passion because it, it's so important to me. Oh, it is important to yeah. all of us. We, some of yeah. us just haven't woke to that yet, you know? And, and I'm with you. I'm, I'm like, I'm feeling the music. I'm feeling that floating away. Like you were talking about the blues and the jazz and the, the great spirituals. It's like, it, it's more than just the music, of course, the whole culture, but there's yeah. so much beauty and grace there for all of us when we can go there. It's so important, Julie, because we could, there's many ways of dealing with racism, for instance, like, for instance, meaning it's one of the social issues. We could say, I'm going to go out and find racist writings, voices, policies, and try to change them. I say, yes, if that's in you to do that, please do that. If you think it might be, find somebody who does that and, and say, can I learn from you, educate me, inspire me. But then there's also all these other places that aren't only that kind of activism, which has to do with educating our hearts and souls by reading the beloved, by listening to reading Maya Angelou's letters or James Baldwin's letters or listening to John Coltrane or Nina Simone's. These can educate us in ways. It doesn't look like a direct thing. Well, how am I then stopping racism in the world? Somebody might say. But these interventions are powerful in ways that I don't even know how to describe, but they change you from the inside out. And if you can take that in, in taking some of the appreciation, for instance, the United States, in my view, has only two original forms, creations. One is the Constitution, and the other is music. And the, mu- and the original music in the United States is all African-American music. It was gospel, blues, jazz, hip-hop, and rap. There is, these, are, these are great forms that the United States, us, me as a white person, a white Jewish man, can take part of and not only split off as black music. This is perhaps the best art and, again, the genius of democracy, of how to have voices together. All of this is embedded in there. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So it, it does, you have opened the conversation, and I have too, about racism. and. You wrote this book, 
before this escalation of the last year, you know, as we look back on 2020. Yeah. And I, I really do want to highlight the essay on All Lives Matter because yeah. so many people do not understand racism and they do not understand the Black Lives Matter and your essay on All Lives Matter. And it's not what you think, listeners. <laughs> wait for wait for David's response. It's not what you think. Um, but I do want to give you some time here to really let's let's muse into why not all lives matter. Let's take the early story that I mentioned, denial, dismissal, and blame as a framework that enters a person. So for my personal story, if I internalize my mother's Hang on, everybody. Let me see. I'll make this transition. If I hang on to my mother's worldview of my father's violence, then I don't walk away only hurt by my father's punch. I walk away thinking, what's wrong with me? Why am I making things up? How come I'm so sensitive? Why am I exaggerating things? I walk away with a view thinking something's wrong with me. Okay, so you have a violator. In that case, it would be my father. And then a witness that I internalize. So my view about social issues, racism, is not only how do I stop a racist assault, please let's stop, let's stop the police officer from misusing their power when they do. Let's stop the person who's, who's using racial, racial epithets that are inappropriate and hurtful. But then the bigger question for me is, how do we witness that? Do I witness that with the denial, missile and dismissal and blame? That's not a big deal. We've had a black president. Let's forget it. We're really past that. Look at how far we've come. Do I witness it that way? by subtly saying that your complaint, that assault, the violence I just saw, shouldn't be taken so seriously. We should not think it's so big. We shouldn't need affirmative action anymore. We've come a long way. It's not a bad idea, but if I witness assault that way, and somebody speaks or makes an action or a policy that hurts African-American bodies, psyches, representation, and I say, it's not such a big deal. It's only happening in a small way. I'm minimizing, denying, gaslighting their voice. And then what happens is a harm happens. The trauma and the abuse that's there gets magnified. So, in that, so when you go to the all lives matter issue, if somebody says black lives matter and somebody says all lives matter, in some worldview, we can say all lives matter. I understand that. But why is that said at that moment? I didn't start a movement saying all lives matter. I started a response, a retort to Black Lives Matter that pushes away, that marginalizes, that dismisses, that says that we shouldn't be focusing only on black lives, even though you're saying it. And that function, that pushing away function, I want to assert all lives matter when you say black lives matter. I want to assert blue lives matter when you say black lives matter, as opposed to has that push away, that denial, dismissal, and then it creates a wound around the racism. It creates that shame. And that shame is as potent in the culture as the actual act. It keeps the violence going. Just like if somebody's, it's like if you said, Julie, I, my child got hurt today. And I say, all children get hurt. You would kind of go, ouch, uh, David, um, I don't know if I want to talk to you. Or you would just not talk to me about it anymore. And you would tell your friends how bad that felt. The same thing's happening. And all children are being hurt. Most children are being hurt. But that's not the point. The point is how it's being used. So my sensitivity, Julie, is always to how things are witnessed as opposed to I'm going to fight you about your racism. That's good. I just noticed something happened that could be hurtful to black life. And I noticed a denial or dismissal or a blame, something that pushed that away. 
And I know how injurious that would happen when the culture takes in that viewpoint, begins to witness injury in that way. Wounds fester and they blow up and they explode and they come out in ways that are much more dangerous. Yeah, and so that violence, that wound, that explode, that danger, I, I think is an important piece of our comfort level here and really understanding it understanding it and how to use it. Because I hope the listeners are really getting that when we look at ourselves in relationship to these issues, we can be better activists and more effective activists. So let's go back to that, that danger and that violence because um, engaging in these conversations is not about peace and harmony. And I want to read um, a quote on page 31 from your book and, and put it into the perspective of the tolerance for our discomfort versus the escalation of, of violence here. And and where do we draw the line? So you Mm -hmm. wrote, trying to make conversations about race more harmonious or peaceful often suppresses the deeper feelings and reactions of all parties, especially black folks who are still waiting to be fully heard. A fact that escalates conflict, judging individuals or the group for being too aggressive, loud, or forceful often escalates strong feelings about the issue. For many black folks, Mm. it is equivalent to being told, you must work to make me comfortable if you want me to listen to you. This can be infuriating for black folks who have been uncomfortable for a long time and are now being told they must make white folks feel comfortable. This is an important part of it. It's an important part of even that Black Lives Matter pushback. Can you, yeah, would would you talk about this tolerance and our own discomfort? How do we safely move toward the discomfort, into our discomfort, into the conflict, and those deeper feelings to really be useful and helpful. How do we do that safely? The thing I think I've, I've learned in the last, whatever, 20 plus years, but in the last few years thinking about this, Julie, it requires so much humility to enter into the issues, the difficulties, the conflicts, the tensions around diversity. It takes enormous humility for me to talk to you, let's say, uh, as a woman, say, talk to me about what it's like to be a woman, for me to enter and know that you're going to tell me something that I likely don't understand. I may not even get that you're going to educate me. And then I have to be open to being educated, not educated, mean like, David, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Maybe that would be too. But that I'm going to have to be open to learning something new. And not only open to learning something new, but learning something new potentially under fire. That means under a heat, not just sitting quietly where no one's around me and I can peacefully contemplate. That's great, too. Please take that time. But diversity education doesn't only happen there. It happens in the tension spot. So how can I open up to be educated? Can I? And the humility it takes for me to say, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be vulnerable right now. I mean, I'm going to learn from somebody I don't know. I'm going to learn from somebody I disagree with. I'm going to learn something about myself. Like I said, it just takes a sense of, wow, I'm going to be open to that, especially knowing this particular thing, that often what you're going to learn in a diversity dialogue is something that you're unconscious of, you're unaware of, that takes even an extra humility, because it's not going to just be like, I disagree with you about this fact. It's going to be, I didn't know that about myself. That is an exposure. When you show me something, it's like taking my clothes off, so to speak, right? Ooh, you're seeing me in a way I didn't even know I that, that I, I didn't even know about myself. 
it's a really special moment. I got to tell a quick story that that you remind me of. We were at a uh, a group that I involved with did a, a conflict about uh, world a group conflict for I think it was a couple of days about racism. I think it was in Oakland many years ago. There's probably like 200 people there, and then some more or less white person, I say more or less because I'm not sure exactly the, all their aspects of their identity, said something that was people would considered racist and hurtful. It had to do with black people move, how they should be dancing, and we should look at them and appreciate that. And some black person said, I, I don't like this. And they got into a conflict and it started getting a little bit hot. And then somebody said, a, moral, a white person said, can't we just be peaceful? Can't we get along? Can't we make this an easy conversation? And this black person in the dialogue said, you're the problem. The racist statement's not so bad. We're just having a conflict now. We're disagreeing with each other. But you have to tone this down. Now I have to make the conversation a different kind of conversation. Now I can't respond as myself. Now I have to conform my whole way of being to a conversation that you think is a better one. And he said, <laughs> he made the point. He said, let me tell you, I these are tough words on some people, so take care of yourself. He said, this is part of the supremacy. He taught me that at that moment, that you think your way of talking about it is a better way. It's like an ethically, morally, spiritually superior way of talking. He said, and that's in the background. He said, so the racist statement, I didn't have as difficult a time with. I thought I can speak back. But the overview that we should be doing it in a certain way, he said, that goes in very deeply mm. and leads some people to feel like, how come I can't do that or become more enraged later on if a person gets silenced by that, because it's not just one racist statement, it's the whole culture now wrapping around that dialogue that says, yes, that makes sense to me. I thought, why not do it better? Why not have it more peaceful? It made sense to me before I listened to that person. Mm. It reminds me of a conversation we just had with my daughter and son-in-law, and we were talking about the holidays and gathering, and um, they're mm. out of state, and they were talking about well, one of our options is to go here. And my son-in-law, who's black, said, I, I want to go there, but it, you know, it's so quiet. And the woman had a head injury, so they kind of keep it calm. They just have nice conversation. He goes, I just want a loud family gathering. And we all kind of laughed because his family gatherings, they're talking over each other and they're, you know, and it's just mm -hmm. part and they get in debates and they get really loud and heated and they talk really louder and louder and louder and compete for, for <laughs> airs time. And, and we just all kind of laughed because my daughter's like, Oh, I'm really kind of glad that we have a quiet holiday here because those are the cultural things that, that we have appreciation for and, and learning about each other in that way. But anyway, there's so much more in this book than yeah. just racism of, of blacks. You talk about so many other topics and we don't have time to go into them all. But David, yeah. I want to give you an opportunity that since you wrote this book, Revisioning Activism, there has been so much activism on the planet. There has been mm -hmm. so many protests. People are on the streets. I'm kind of curious with some of these hot topics. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to respond in, in three or four minutes here of what about our political division? What about global warming and climate change? What about nationalism versus globalism versus a whole worldview versus one world order versus all the conspiracy theories that are out there? You've watched over the last year so many different themes probably bubbling up in topics that do deserve activism. What do you think of our current state of affairs? 
Well, two things come to mind, Jolie. First thing is, I, I want to say to people, because we have an election, and now there's a more progressive person than a more conservative person, without going into the specifics and the names at the moment, doesn't resolve the deeper issue, the deeper issue that leads to a more conservative and or Barack Obama and then a Donald Trump and maybe a Joe Biden and maybe who knows what comes next. There's a pendulum moving back and forth that has much greater power and movement, in my view, than now we are now we're moving in a progressive direction. Because some people thought that when I'm a more progressive person, obviously. Some people like me thought that when Obama was elected, there was a false, in my view, kind of, oh my gosh, maybe things are really changing. I think they are changing, but there's a movement back and forth. And we more or less, in the United States, we more or less have a 50-50 country in terms of the, our extreme views. So it's not over. doesn't mean we shouldn't take a break and go, phew, I'm glad the party that I wanted to win won. But don't let that deny and dismiss the real tensions in the heart and the soul and the consciousness of the United States, the split around diversity, whether it's political diversity and it overlays with racial and gender and, and uh, gender preference and religious preference, it, it overlays on those particular diversities. Don't let you, don't think, aha, phew, we took care of it. Because the country's like a 50-50 country, the Supreme Court has moved a certain way, and we should expect, I will expect, the country to pendulum continually. So for a while, as it grows, so it's not a single moment. So don't put that away, I would say. Recognize this is what we're really up against. Uh, yeah. David, I want to just ask you one more thing because I can't let you go now. Yeah. How do you see the split around our diversity and this polarization in the inner world? So all of our listeners and me are here you have the moment to coach us. What is, what do we have to look at on the inside in our inner world as we deal with the polarization and the split around diversity? Wow. I mean, if I could get everybody to do something that may not be right for some people, I would say, take your views about life, your outer views. I want to end white supremacy and whatever. I want healthcare for all. Take that view and think, how do I apply it to myself? Do I want health care for all, for all of me? And then that would be the first part. And then make sure that you stand for that in your outer world. Express yourself. Take your passion about that and bring it out further if you haven't gone far enough. Make sure you take your own side. That view comes stronger because if people don't stand up for the view they have that they think is their main, their main view, they don't feel ready to make a shift. But then if you can, take some of the views that you find abhorrent, difficult, or a little difficult, or a lot, and say, what is it about that view that's so difficult for me? What is the view, let's say, for instance, of I want to keep immigrants out of the country, somebody might say. And, I, and David Bedrick says, I think that's a bad idea. Is there a way that I would ask myself that making a boundary inside and keeping yourself insular and not letting other people and viewpoints in, do you need a little taste of that also, David, inside of yourself? Mm. Then I'd have to, then if you asked me that today, I hadn't asked myself that question until just now. I think I do. Sometimes I'm too open and I let things in. Begin to see a little bit about how those things that are difficult 
live inside. That doesn't mean I have to agree with the outer policy. It doesn't mean I should go out and say, oh, good, I think women shouldn't have abortions and whatever, and I want to take women's rights. It doesn't mean to live it that way. If you get, think of it only literally, you'll get stuck. Yeah. But think of the basic attitude or the ways in which I do bias myself. I don't have an inner democracy, really. I think being this way is better than being this way. See if you can expand your view a little bit inside. It'll help you inside and it'll help with your inner diversity. And then when you meet another person who's projecting, in my view now, projecting onto immigration as a boundary issue, I can at least say, I don't disagree. I don't agree with you about immigration. I think the United States is built on immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. But I sure understand the need to create a fence around myself and in certain groups and my families to protect us. I really do get that. I'm not only separate from you. Makes sense to me. Mm. Yeah. David, thank you for your brilliance today. I really appreciate you bringing this mm. to our listeners. Mm. Thank you. Mm. And I want to leave you listeners with the words of David Bedrick. We will be healed not when we rid ourselves and the world of symptoms, tears, and violence. But when we look upon these through new eyes, eyes that know this is me, this is you, and we are all in this together. You've been listening to the Dr. Julie Show, All Things Connected. Remember, together we are creating connections for the good of the whole. Until next time, I'm sending you a world of love. Bye for now.